This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 401, January the 8th, 1998. This evening, we're very sorry that Douglas Murray cannot be with us. His wife is seriously ill. Those of you who don't know Douglas well, uh, you've missed something. He's a man of very rare and remarkable character. We're very happy, though, to have our financial manager, Colonel Doner, with us, and we expect to hear more from him uh, later in the year as uh, he is better able to give us time for uh, our easy chairs. We do have Andrew uh, Sandlin, and Mark Rushdoony here. Now, our first subject is the family, the war against the family, and uh, some problems that have been created by the modern state for the family. I'm going to begin by reading something from the New American, which is uh, a condensation of something from the Rockford Institute Center on the Family in America, P.O. Box 416, Mount Morris, Illinois, 61054. I quote, According to Bill Kaufman, associate editor of the Family in America newsletter, the single greatest cause of American rootlessness over the last half century is our standing army. In the September issue, Kaufman writes that the maintenance of a large standing army, especially an army in which men are stationed away from that place which they and their families call home, is a significant factor in the destruction of American family life. Prior to the Vietnam War, mostly, most of military personality and personnel were single, but by 1973, more than 80% of Army officers were buried, and the single man's army was history. The mobility associated with military service precludes the establishment of family-stabilizing roots, notes Kaufman, when her man is at sea or on maneuvers, or anywhere but home. The wife cannot rely on the usual support systems of kin and neighbors. There are only other military families who are liable to vanish just as friendships are being formed. Over the last half century, Kaufman continues, we have created a class of citizens affectionately known as military brats, or homeless children whose only experience of American life comes from a series of temporary residences on the socialist reservations known as military bases. Children living on overseas bases often find it difficult to make friends, since, among other factors, the constant change of schools means that these children are always the new kid, the kid not 
worth befriending because no sooner do you come to like him than he goes off into the wild blue yonder. War, by its very nature, overturns the natural order of things. But even in peacetime, the maintenance of a large standing army is incompatible with American life, as our forefathers and others understood it. End of quote. Now, before we discuss that, uh, I'd like to give a little historical background here, because we have something new in history from the time of Napoleon, drafted armies. Napoleon started it, and it led to the destruction of family life in France, devastating results for Europe and for the world, because the home was regarded as so central to society that the state went out of its way to protect it. The family was the permanent, the enduring, the stabilizing force in any and every society. The power of the parents was very great. The children had a very important place in the future of the family. For example, in the Netherlands, a farmhouse, however small and humble, was built with a, a small apartment for the old folks. So that when the father felt he was no longer able to uh, do the management and the heavy work on the farm, he and his wife moved into the little apartment. It meant they could come and go with their children and grandchildren, but they could also shut the door that connected the two parts of the house and have their privacy. And the son and his wife and children took over the management of the farm. The fact of military conscription that came in with Napoleon began to destroy the old order. It created a rootlessness in young people. The last place for this to happen was the United States. The fact of World War I was upsetting enough, but with World War II, we began military conscription. And while we don't have an operative draft, we do have a draft whereby all young men are to register for possible conscription at any time. We create an uncertainty and instability in their lives. America is the st still, despite all our problems, the problem of uh, youth gangs, the problem of uh, delinquency and uh, cocaine and crack and other drugs and the drift away from family authority, still more family-centered than most nations in the Western world. And even then, many nations outside the Western world where erosion is becoming quite rapid. I know that I 
grew up in uh, Kingsburg, California, although we had spells when my father as a minister was elsewhere, and we were too. But I was interested that uh, the members of my high school graduating class, class of 1934, before you were born, <laughs> and many of our listeners probably, before they were born, most of the class members at one of the reunions were still living within 20 miles of Kingsburg. That type of stability still governs a fair amount of America. This is why, in spite of all our problems, we have a greater stability than anywhere else. Now, as against, for example, the country we've been closest to over the years, England, Great Britain, where now so few go to church, and where even when you include all the Muslims, and there are, are any number of Muslim mosques all over England, it is still the least religious country in the world. <coughs> we are still the most religious because we have a closeness to our past of a strong family life and an aversion to uh, military adventures and to uh, armies and whatnot. So, I, for one, think that uh, conscription has been one of the great evils of modern history. Well, Rush, let me just ask you this. I, I never knew that about Napoleon before. And do you, uh, was Napoleon like a member of the Illuminati or something? I mean, that he would want to destroy the family on purpose? That we don't know. The Bavarian Illumi Illuminati was in existence at that time. But uh, Napoleon was a product of the French Revolution. Hmm. He turned against the revolution when he recognized the depravity of man. He did that in the campaign in uh, Egypt when he saw the Muslim population there and the depravity of the peoples, he was horrified. And all his liberal humanistic ideas about the natural goodness of man were discarded overnight. <laughs> and uh, he went back to France and uh, did everything he could to overthrow the revolutionary regime and succeeded. But he realized that uh, the revolutionary regime had enough roots among the people that he could not reinstate the power of the church. Not because he was a believer, but because he recognized that church and family were so basic to civilization, he wanted to go back to the old order in that respect. And uh, the kind of uh, thinking which Illuminist tradition in his day represented was so strongly rooted by that time in France that everyone around him said, you cannot go back 
to the authority of the church and the family. So, then to defend his takeover, he had to fight the powers of Europe, which is interesting, Colonel. The uh, opposition to the French Revolutionary regime by Britain, for example, and Austria was half-hearted. They knew that, uh, in spite of some successes, the uh, revolutionary regime was basically a weak regime. And while they were royalist and favored uh, the Bourbons, they didn't favor their return to power. They, they favored a weak France. They favored a weak France because you must realize for at least two to three centuries before the French Revolution, France was the great power in Europe. And again and again, the nations had united against France. Well, much as they were fearful of the revolutionary ideas, they were glad to see the French monarchy overthrown. Well, once a strong man, Napoleon, took over, that was another matter. This man was more dangerous than the Bourbon kings. So they had to wipe him out. And of course, they finally did. So, what Napoleon realized was the revolution and its ideas, liberty, fraternity, equality, had caught on with the people to a considerable extent. And they were ready to defend France in a way they never had been for Bourbon kings. So he went to conscription, and it is amazing the intense loyalty that so many Frenchmen showed that a generation of uh, young men went to their deaths and left France with a limited youth. That's happened very few times in history. It happened once before under Charles XII of Sweden, whose wars against the German states and against Peter the Great were uh, at first enormously successful and finally disastrous, but in the process Sweden disappeared as the great power it had been up to that moment. Well, you know, that brings to thought, it may be a little off the track, but um, speaking about how fielding these large armies to fight wars not only is detrimental to the family, but to the country itself. Yes. I mean, I was just talking with uh, my wife Miriam uh, a week ago about the uh, uh, the czar, the last czar of Russia, and uh, she was asking me how that whole thing collapsed. And my my uh, turn of the century Russian history is a little rusty, but I said, as I remember, the reason that the Bolsheviks got their chance, and of course Germany, as I remember, sent them in as an agent, mm -hmm. uh, sent a Lenin and a small crew in. This is during World War, uh, um, World War, uh, no, it was World War One. Was yes. at, was it World War One? Rush. That was what 1914 to 19 or something. 18. 
okay, and the uh, revolution was 1917. Right. But um, anyway, the, my point was that I thought what gave Lenin the real opening is that the Tsar was fighting that huge war, yes. war, and his army was losing like crazy. And his army, as I remember, turned on him, and the Bolsheviks, or at least were ready to turn, the Bolsheviks uh, were able to take advantage of the low morale um, and my, the point being that if the Tsar had never fielded his army, exactly, they probably wouldn't have collapsed inward, and 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 communism would never have gotten a foothold. Is there something to that? Uh, there is everything to it. At that time, Russia was the booming economy of the world. Its only competitor was the United States. It was uh, selling uh, all kinds of groups uh, uh, materials all over the world. It was making, for example, railroad uh, trains and tracks, going to South America and building the rail lines and shipping their own manufactured uh, materials there. My father said that uh, at the beginning of the war, uh, and he had been traveling earlier before the war in Europe, he said uh, Russia was very rich, very prosperous, but with the blockade, unable to sell anything to the world, cut off from the rest of Europe, from Latin America, from all its markets, its economy collapsed, mm. its armies collapsed, and Russia fell. And at that point, the infamous Rasputin was very wise. He had told the Tsar under no circumstances should he allow himself to be sucked into the coming war. It would be the hmm. end of Russia. Hmm. And in his absence, highly placed people were sure this was going to be greatness. A glorious the, war. Yes, a glorious war. And they destroyed the, uh, the, the Russian uh, monarchy, and they destroyed the world, it gave us couple of generations of uh, Marxism entrenched in a good deal of the world, a sizable segment of it, and uh, in the process destroyed religion and the family in old Russia. Well, Rush, speaking of, of that and bringing it back home, I think your topic was how a, a an army conscription scheme destroys the family since you're one of the have been one of the leading teachers this century on the family as the building block of a godly society and I think one of the spheres of, of government um, do you and and clearly a st if the state is going to be all-powerful it must replace the family mm -hmm. uh, yes. as an ordinance of government do you think that to some degree um, the situation is by design. In other words, that there are people in this country that know exactly what they're doing by by increasing, you know, having a, an army much larger than may be needed, you know, as part of an attack on the family. Or is it just coincidental? No, I think the uh, state school was designed by Horace Mann to be the new church. And uh, the schools, and uh, Sam Blumenfeld can document this and has, very early began to work to separate the parent from
from the child by trying to make it more and more difficult for the parents to help their children with the homework. Consider, for example, the new math alone. <laughs> that made it impossible for the parents to help their children. And of course, impossible for the children to do the problems. So things like that have been designed to separate the children from their parents. Our culture has done that. Consider the disrespect that is routine in the, uh, on television programs by mm -hmm. children for their parents. Uh, I know even when I was in high school, One of the first times we ever saw anything like that, um, the kids at school or high school were discussing it, and you've got to remember practically every kid in the school then, in high school, spoke a foreign language at home. They were Swedes, they were Portuguese, they were Armenians, Italians, you name it. Well, one of the... Uh, uh, fellows, a football player, said that if he uh, acted like that, referring to some movie, he'd be knocked into a corner by his father. And it never would have occurred to him that even though he was as big, this, to resist. That was his father. And if his father chose him to knock him in the corner, well, then he must have deserved it. That was the feeling. Now, I've been told and I've heard from parents who are afraid of their children, their daughters. So, we live in a different world. The authority of the family has been undermined, and it's been systematically undermined. And that's one reason why uh, homeschooling is beginning to take hold even among non-Christians. They recognize what it is doing. Andrew? Well, I was just going to mention a couple of things, Rush. It's interesting you selected that topic. I was just reading uh, recently, rereading portions of Robert Nisbet's book, The Social Philosophers. Yeah. His first chapter is on the war society. Yes. Among other things he points out is that the war society always, over time, overthrows the bedrock society, and that is family society. Mm -hmm. War society is inherently yes. at war with uh, the family. Among other things, it redirects loyalties from the, to the family and the father to some military leader or yes. hero. And uh, it tends, over time, to create harsh and violent personalities. Mm -hmm. uh, men who do nothing but fighting for a living, yes, mm -hmm. uh, rather than men who go out, of course, in the, you know, the medieval era, for the most part, and earlier, who would fight and then come home to their families, mm -hmm. and then go out and fight again. And, of course, the war itself assaults family life, especially total war. Yes. Um, a lot of people don't realize that several hundred years ago that uh, there was a class of warriors that would go out and fight another class of warriors. <laughs> but today it's not that way at all. There's a total warfare... And that's why civilian sites are often bombed. I mean, that's just totally Primarily in many cases. Yeah. And, of course, that happened in World War II, as we yes. well know. Uh, on both sides. Yes. So, um, 
although I didn't mention much about the draft there, uh, it was really interesting when you brought that topic up, uh, up Rush, to, to recall it. I'd rec recommend Nisbet's book along that line, because this idea of perpetual warfare and a, and a, a large, a perpetual standing army really is at war with a society itself. Yes. Well, the question is, why is a large army needed, uh, you know, when communism was alive and well? Um, that, you know, it was obviously needed, and we may need it again well, when the Chinese uh, well, get a little bit no, more aggressive. No, I, I think that if you hold a different view, a more of a what's called today pejoratively an isolationist view, you're not going to come to that conclusion. I mean, was it the responsibility of the United States to make the world safer democracy? That was Wilson's messianic uh -huh. design. Now, communism is a terrible evil, don't misunderstand. But the question is, uh, should the United States be going all around the world trying to well, that was my point. I mean, well, I would argue that we probably did need to uh, field the defense we did against uh, the Soviet Union, which was ex extremely an, a very aggressive advocate, or adversary, rather. But today, yeah, that was my point, is why, why the army today? Why do we have troops in Bosnia? Why, for heaven's sakes, uh, are we in NATO supporting that with hundreds of millions, if not billions yeah. of dollars? Well, and I don't know Somalia. how many troops we have there. Yeah. Sixty or seventy different countries where we have troops stationed. And yeah. the only place we need them is on the border with Mexico. <laughs> I mean, why don't we bring NATO home? Actually, I was just with Pat Buchanan doing an interview uh, similar to this on your behalf, Rush, to get him to write in the magazine and to uh, mine some quotes out of him for my article in, in the report. You know. I know mm -hmm. he did. Uh, and, uh, no, I started describing some of his friends that wrote for the magazine. You know, I said, well, you know, uh, Howard Phillips writes and Larry Pratt writes and, and John Lofton writes. And he said, well, you're talking about Dr. Rush doing his magazine. I said, <laughs> oh, yes, I am. Well, in any case, Buchanan laughed his head off and said, Colonel, that's exactly what my point is when I'm running for president, that we ought to bring NATO back and put it on our own borders, yeah. you know, to safeguard uh, against the illegal immigration we're getting rather than having them bouncing around in Boston for heaven's sakes. Yes, and today Mexico has replaced Colombia as a number one uh, drug center. And it's coming across the border, the drugs, at a tremendous rate. And we're doing very little about it. We're handicapping our own uh, drug enforcement people. Well, America tends to have uh, messianic designs in the world, and has at yes. least since World War One and, and Wilson. Yes. Um, <clears throat> the idea of um, refusing foreign entanglements. And I believe uh, Rush was it not George Washington warned in one of his yes. last addresses That's about right. uh, European entanglements, and just the opposite has happened. Mark, you were going to mention. Well, if you believe in big government, if you're basically a statist, then you believe the concept of small governments an oxymoron. If you're a statist, you have to have a powerful government, and you have to have government that has the force to back up its threats. You have to have a government that can perform a Waco or something like that against external foes and against internal yes, uh, right. foes. You have to have the threat point. of force. So you have to have an IRS that people are afraid of. Right. The IRS didn't get away from Congress. It didn't get away from a government. Uh, like they you know, tried to lead us to believe that they really want to clean up Iraq. They wanted people to fear them. They wanted to be able to speak and have people, citizens, jump. And we've, we have a big uh, military capacity because 
our leaders have wanted some, uh, a, they wanted to have the image of power. Don't mess with us, not just externally, but also internally. Yeah. And they haven't noticed they haven't used it against the places in the past that they perhaps should have used it. They've backed down in the face of real foreign aggression and threats and abuses. They didn't use it when they needed to. They've used it and the in, issue in more less important cases. Yeah, and the issue is more and more not war, but uh, being the world's policeman, you know, in uh, mm -hmm. Korea and in Somalia and so forth. And uh, <clears throat> well, you better be careful, Andrew, because you're going to run afoul the entire conservative movement now, the neocons, as we've written about extensively. Well, in I, we're, we don't mind alienating them because they're not uh, genuine Christian conservatives. That's for sure. But uh, but uh, my my point being for you to uh, comment on is that this part of the whole neocon, which is as we've talked, if you, our listeners haven't read the January issue, they need to do that, and they probably have anyway, but where we talk about how the neoconservatives have effectively taken over the conservative movement, and they are internationalists, and having a large standing army to play policemen isn't that part of their overall agenda. Yeah, and that's why they oppose the so, well, people like Calcedon and the so-called paleo-conservatives, uh, those who um, want to get back more to a biblical idea of small government. One of the things we need to recognize is that uh, a number of things are happening now uh, that are working to restore the strength of the family. Of course, we've dealt with it before, but the Christian school movement and the homeschool movement have both been very, very influential in strengthening the family. and. Both need to be strengthened and enhanced. I know that uh, the opposition recognizes this. I recall not too long ago in Washington, D.C., the conference of the Society for the Separation of uh, State and School, one uh, speaker described the fact that uh, we can expect and must expect from the federal level down efforts to jump on the bandwagon of the Christian homeschool movement by financing them. And once you finance something, then you can control it because the Supreme Court time and again has said where any kind of state money goes, state controls must follow. So. If the Christian community does not wake up, it will be taken over. And just as in uh, Great Britain at the beginning of this century, the Christian school movement was wiped out by state support, the same will happen here. So we must insist on the freedom of the Christian school and the home school for the sake of the family and the future of this country. Rush, who was that that was talking about the government would probably offer support to uh, to homeschoolers? I've forgotten his name. I believe he was an attorney. He gave an excellent analysis. Hopefully in the next day or two you will have an opportunity to spend a little time with Marshall Fritz, the head of the organization, and he perhaps can tell you more. Because I was just going to ask what, what would be the area uh, that the government would attack the homeschool movement, and that's the last thing I would think about would be co-opting it through finance, yes. through uh, funding it. 
if you can't defeat them, buy them. Exactly. In case after case in the courts from coast to coast, they've lost. In legislative attempts, they've lost. And this has alerted the community, so they are resistant to any attempt to force any kind of UN uh, treaty on us that would do the same thing. So they will try now to subsidize us and destroy us that way. I think something else, <clears throat> favorable feature along this line, is that we're now seeing finally uh, some counter-feminist measures. Yes. Um, strong, decisive male leadership in the mm -hmm. family, and that's absolutely necessary. Yes. Um, and of course, the leadership in the church and in the state, uh, strong male, decisive male leadership is not going to occur until it starts in the family, mm -hmm. because the family is the cornerstone. But we do have a, a core, I think, of, of godly men that um, are, are really recognizing the evils of feminism and the so-called egalitarian, gender egalitarian culture. And um, they begin in the family. Many of them are Chalcedon readers, you know, and Chalcedon supporters. And I think that's a very good countermeasure, men starting to take vibrant leadership. In fact, it's interesting because um, I think, Colonel, the last five, ten years, haven't you been doing like men's conferences right. on that very on that very issue? Maybe you want to talk about that just for a minute. Do you, you see the need here of strong male leadership, obviously. Well, I was assuming you were talking about the promise keepers. Um, <laughs> an inside joke. I've, you've got to get me to do a monograph on the promise keepers. <laughs> that's, that's, that, that, could be a, that could be a whole, uh, a whole uh, tape there. I think some of our people have been asking questions, but um, yeah, I think you're, you're right, um, Andrew. Uh, however, uh, I, my, my concern is that, that groups like the promise keepers who are promising that sort of a message, uh, mm -hmm. you know, holding out to men, we are going to uh, uh, teach you to, uh, you know, be what, to, to be a godly man in essence, to model godly masculinity, um, don't really seem to have a clue. As, as, uh, as a matter of fact, um, I think as Douglas Wilson noted in his uh, recent critique of the Promise Keepers, a book of the name I don't recall, uh, but that the Promise Keepers' prescription for men is basically to be more like their wives, uh, to be gentler, to be kinder, uh, in, in fact, to be more feminine. Uh, to relate to men as women relate to women. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And, you know, and of course, it's a pi very pietistic model. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, in Promise Keepers' behalf, I want to say, I mean, their, what their message is, is it's, it's focus on the family for men. Um, and that's not a bad message. It's not a bad message to say, look, go home and be a better father or be a father. Go home and be a better husband. Um, be more active in your church. That's that's. There's nothing wrong with that message. The problem is, is that that is not all there is to the Christian life. Uh, it's not just about your family. It's just not a pietistic regimen. And so, promise keepers, unfortunately, because they are just a, a normal dispensational evangelical uh, grouping, um, they have no understanding of the stewardship mandate. Uh, man as steward of all of God's creation. Uh, so, 
you know, their ability to lift men up into leadership is, is limited to perhaps, um, you know, making them a, a better leader in their family, which of course is a good step. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of a mixed bag, and it actually applied to what you're saying is, I think they are part of a wider Christian movement that that are encouraging men uh, to be uh, to, to retake uh, the leadership position that feminism has discouraged men from taking. But you know, promise keepers again doesn't they see the first couple of steps that should be taken and and not the rest, but. You know, I, I, I don't think there's any real stress here on virile manliness that uh, uh, historic Calvinists have emphasized. A, a book that Rush has talked about a lot, Dan Douglas's The Feminization of American right. Culture, is a classic along that, pointing out that the erosion of Calvinism is what paved the way for, for feminism. It began in the church, not outside the church. So um, I think that's a point that we need to that we need to recognize. I mean, we have a whole group of, of effeminate men these days, unfortunately. There is a countermeasure, thank God for that, but uh, modern evangelicalism is rife with, I mean, essentially it's feminized religion. Well, I think Rush has made the point that, you know, if you're going to be a masculine man does not feel uh, comfortable in most churches today. Oh. That's not his home. If he wants to make a difference, you know, uh, he goes to make be a revolutionary to bring uh, you know justice to the land. Uh, any of the things that uh, uh, classical Christianity has has uh, mandated for us, the last place he seeks to to be active in is the church because it does not welcome uh, dynamic, aggressive uh, male type uh, uh, right. leadership and. Uh, to me, that's that's been one of the important messages uh, that Rush has weaved through his works uh, uh, for several decades, and I do think it's beginning to bear fruit. I agree. Um, and if nothing else, men are kind of reaching a breaking point, saying, "Well, you know, where is there a place for us?" And uh, but you know, churches wonder where are the men because most, right. most of them, most of the people sitting oh. in the churches are women. Yeah, and the men are feminized there, and especially you can tell the music is feminized. Hardly any great hymns of the faith that are strong masculine hymns, and the sermons are feminized. They're they're designed for felt needs. But where do we see the really firm, strong theological um, declaration? I mean, sermons that we would have heard the Puritans and even those in the many of those in the medieval period in the Reformation era. Very few of them. There there is a revival of that, thank God, but not not in modern you know so-called conservative churches or even Reformed churches. That's why I think the revival is going to come outside the institutional churches, because most of the denominations are in the hands of liberals anyway. I mean, the, the only denominations that are strong in the faith, if they're reformed, are, tend to be the smallest ones of all. What strikes me in, in listening to all of this and pondering it a bit is that, you know, the family under attack from so many um, directions, whether it's uh, um, the arm, standing army, conscription policies, or the media, or public education, or feminism, to fight back it has to have strong male leadership. I mean, the, right. the, the fathers are the ones who have to, right. to fight back, yeah. and, uh, and, and yet that's <clears throat> been the problem, is that society has, uh, has emasculated them. 
And yeah. our job is is to uh, remasculinize. Yes, yes, yes. Is, is to get these guys willing to just take some male headship, some leadership, and and take some initiative. And I think that's one thing that Calcedon has been noted for doing. I mean, strongly stressing family leadership and homeschooling and so forth. And I think that's an area that we need to constantly reemphasize because I believe feminism is one of the chief errors. Of, of our of the modern generation one of the chief social problems is feminism well the men I think the key is is Christian men in particular are not going to turn into the stewards or the warriors or the leaders that we would have them unless they understand uh, that being made in in his image uh, entails a stewardship responsibility and if they're mm -hmm. not taught that in the churches, then it means they have no identity. That's right. Their only identity is essentially our Darwinian identity, mm -hmm. where they uh, they are not the vice regent of God. They are not deputized uh, to do anything other than uh, do some sort of a pietistic inward, um, uh, you know, uh, a trip. And so, and again, that's what I see Rush laboring over for decades is to um, provide a foundation for men to understand what is their true identity because only then are they going to be called or, right. or called up to a standard. They don't understand their dominion uh, mandate, do they? No. And, excuse me, it's, there's uh, no concept of covenant also in a lot of the talk right. of the family. Sometimes you see it says, well, you're responsible to God first and then your family and then your work as though they're pieces of pyramid and one is on top and the other is completely submissive to the other, which completely destroys any kind of dominion mandate if your work takes third, you know, is, mm -hmm. is, is, is a secondary or third That's consideration. Yes. Uh, instead of seeing areas everything is under God and God gives the family certain areas responsibility and the family is uh, a prime area of, you know, the social unit, it's your prime area of government, but you see your dominion mandate as in, in the context of your family, but extending beyond your family. That's right. And there are limits to the responsibility you owe to your family, and there are limits to the authority of the family, and it all has to be seen in context of God's law. And so much of this, the modern psychological view of let's return to family values, has Good it has no concept of covenant, right. and therefore it tries to prioritize things and it gets things all mixed up. Absolutely. And, it, and, if it, and if just talking about the family, it sounds very good, but they can't put it in a con larger context. Right. I was just going to say, there's no point. context to hold it in. And they don't see that men are called to be dominion-oriented, not only in the family, but outside the family. Right. So this idea to call men back to the family can be very devious and very dangerous if it's not set in the context in which yeah, Mark's talking. Yeah, because they just stay in the family. Exactly. Now, a woman's calling is exercised mainly in her family, but that's not... Man's calling, not certainly not exclusively man's calling. One of the things that has marked this century uh, that has been an undercurrent in the modern world has been the concept of the conflict of interests. The biblical position is the harmony of interests, but in the modern perspective, which comes to focus in Darwin and his worldview. Everything is at war with everything else, so you have a struggle for survival. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. You've got to step on somebody or you'll get stepped on, and so on. 
The whole subject, as far as it relates to our concern, was uh, brought into humorous focus in the 20s by James Thurber, the humorist, in his book, The Battle of the Sexes. Well, it was uh, enormously successful because the whole idea had taken hold, as though that is the fact of life, the battle of the sexes, not their essential harmony. That if there is a battle, it is because there is sin. That harmony comes with grace and with love. So we've had a totally different perspective. We have since advanced the subject to include the battle of the generations. And uh, we're carrying that further. The yuppies were seen as rising up against the hippies, the generation that preceded them, and the yuppies are now the target of their children so that uh, there is perpetual warfare in terms of this modern outlook. Well, as Christians, we cannot believe that. We believe that there is warfare only where there is sin. And where there is grace, there is harmony and peace. Uh, it is a moral failure if there is warfare but for the modern perspective, it is a metaphysical fact. That's right. That's right. Because you are of a different sex, you are therefore at war. That's the feminist perspective. Because you are of a differing generation, on the scale of evolution, you've outgrown the generation before you. Therefore, you are at war with it. You've got to kick it in the teeth in order to have social advancement. And Marxism, a different class at yes. war. Yes. Yeah. So it's war on all fronts. And uh, we've seen it in such areas as the art world. Each new school wars against the school before it because to paint the way they did before is uh, to be dead, to be worthless. To write music the way it was written, uh, you're passé. So you have to get wilder and wilder at what you produce. And then there's a literary deconstruction, which is exactly oh, yes. the same thing, correct? Yes. Destroying the literature that came that came before. And even postmodernism itself is an attack on modernism and scientism uh, and the scientific ethic which preceded it, which itself was an attack upon the, the Christian ethic that preceded it. That's right. Yes. Well, I've been writing uh, of late and reviewing his works on Paul Tillich. And it is interesting how he reduces the whole idea of Protest Protestantism to doubt, perpetual doubt. Well, uh, this is what the modern perspective leads to. Total warfare between the generations, between the sexes, between the old and the new, between everything. Uh, Rush, couldn't you, and uh, you mentioned the word Darwin, all of this is implicit in social Darwinism. Oh, yes. And, and feminism in particular, the warfare between the sexes, if you're not in a godly context, 
and you're in a, a what we call a, a social Darwinism, Darwinism applied to to interpersonal relationships, then it's the law of the jungle. It is man against yes. woman. Without the Christian context, the wife is certainly not going to be interested in being submissive, just as the husband is not going to be interested in being a uh, exercising a Christ-like headship. So you are going to have an animal-like, a law of the jungle, social Darwinian conflict. Except when you watch uh, PBS nowadays, most of what you get are nature films. And the gist of them all is how marvelous uh, these animals are. The only vile thing is left is man. So we are uh, saying that uh, animals killing each other is entirely good, natural, and so on, although God makes clear it's a product of a fallen world. And uh, only man is vile. Well, that's why we save the baby whales, but not the baby humans. Yes. That's right. Well, we started off with a draft and its implications. And uh, we've seen how it's the tip of an iceberg. But across the boards, we have been following a line of thinking that is leading to the destruction of man and society. And of course the only hope is what we at Cal Seidon are emphasizing, that is godly reconstruction, reestablishing Christian culture, Christian civilization, beginning not top-down, but mm -hmm. in individuals and families yes. and churches, other private institutions and groups, and then ultimately of course wider society and, and the state. And that really is the the only hope, a comprehensive approach to the problem, because piecemeal measures just will not work. That's right. Uh, you know, when I look at other ministries, Rush, and some of them good as far as they go, I think that's a real distinguishing point between what Chalcedon's doing and theirs. They're very narrowly focused on this church problem, or this particular family problem, or this scientific problem, whereas what we're doing really is comprehensive in scope, not just intellectually although that's a part of it, but in all areas of life, in charity, of course, and emphasizing education and the arts and literature and all of those things. Well, the sad fact is that many people don't understand what we're trying to do. They feel our concern, for example, with missions is inappropriate. We should be purely intellectual. So that we have a kind of... Uh, specialization today in every area that is leading to the destruction of the unity of life. That's right. Uh, dissection does not give us the whole man. That's right. You may learn a great deal about human muscles and uh, blood cells and the like from dissection, but you don't know the man. The man is not to be uh, seen as the sum of his physical parts. Right. Rush, I'll never forget when I first picked up Institutes of Biblical Law and read it, I said, this man has a, a remarkable mind because it's so comprehensive and all-encompassing. But there's very little of that today, unfortunately, because of that sort of specialized approach to life that is even rife in the church. Not only, we think about it in medicine, you know, specialists in medicine. Um, you got to see a specialist to go see about a specialist who's a specialist of a specialist. You know how that goes. But... Um, <clears throat> I think Chalcedon is really just the antithesis of that. 
I think it's interesting that the biggest event in religion, uh, we are told, in 1997 was the effort of a publisher to put out um, a new edition of the New International Version which would eliminate uh, sexism and would uh, have God talking like our feminists, apparently. And uh, the uh, group, uh, Joel Bells and the uh, World, World Magazine, World Magazine yeah, the Alaskies took World a Magazine. great deal of punishment for the stand they did against it. From the evangelicals, they were the yes. ones who were attacking them. Yeah. Uh, and yet, uh, they rallied enough support among uh, ordinary people uh, to uh, prevent that Bible from being published. That was a major victory. Yes, they really took on almost the whole of the evangelical establishment. Yes. And they really have won because, as you said, Rush, ordinary people, and a few scholars, but for the most part, ordinary, ordinary people in the pew just stood up well, for them. Well, the interesting thing to me is that uh, those who took the stand against that uh, <coughs> adulterated version of the Bible, uh, some of their relatives are still refusing to speak to them. Oh, dear. Well, I thought, as usual, the evangelical attack on world um, for bringing the topic up was most interesting. The premise was, we don't care if your magazine's charges were true. Right. Uh, it wasn't nice it to, was to bring yes, yes. disunity. It was a pietistic thing of, it doesn't matter what you say, it's how you say it. Yes, uh, the yeah. charge was that world did not speak lovingly and kindly. Mm -hmm. uh, that it was too abrupt and direct in its criticism. Feminization of evangelicalism. I mean, yeah. how do people look at Rich Dooney and, and us and Chalcedon? Well, evangelicals do too intellectual and too hard. Because anybody that stands for the truth and, and does it in a very cogent, thoughtful way is going to be accused of that in a, in a very weak and sentimental age. So I imagine they would have suggested condemning Hitler and Stalin in only very polite, kind terms. Yes. Well, if Calvin and Luther were, were alive today, uh, they would be hooted out of most evangelical churches because they were men who stood forthrightly for the truth. Well, our time is almost up. Is there a last comment or two that any of you want to make? Only that men need to take the lead again in their families and in their churches yes. and in society and in the state. And you have any questions on how to do that, men listening? Right, Mark Rushdoney and Andrew Sandlin, and they'll give you a point-by-point -point <laughs> tip sheet. <laughs> well, thank you all for listening, and Colonel, we're very glad to have you with us in this session, and again in our next, and we hope before the year is over, and a great many more with your own uh, donor report. Well, I'll look forward to it, Doctor. Thank you. Good night and God bless you all.